From the Coindesk Global Macro News Desk, this is Borderless, a twice-monthly roundup of the most important stories impacting Bitcoin and the crypto sector around the world. It's created by Coindesk reporters Nick Day, Anna Badakova and Danny Nelson. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Borderless. I'm Nick Day. I'm Anna Baidakova. And I'm Danny Nelson. On today's show, the FinCEN files, AirTM isn't working in Venezuela the way people hoped, and stablecoin regulations are reappearing in the US and Europe. Hi, everyone. Excited to kick off this first episode of our podcast. Thanks for joining. And we're going to start with actually something not entirely crypto related, but it is important for the entire global finance and definitely has been noticed by the crypto industry. And I'm talking about the FinCEN files. On Monday, BuzzFeed and over about the hundred other publications in the world published an investigation based on thousands of suspicious activity reports filed by some of the world's largest banks. And guess what? The most reputable financial institutions in the world helped move around tons of dirty money, stolen funds, Ponzi schemes, sanctions entities, you name it. Some quotes. The FinCEN files expose an underlying truth of the modern era. The networks through which dirty money traverse the world have become vital arteries of the global economy. They enable a shadow financial system so wide-ranging and so unchecked that it has become inextricable from the so-called legitimate economy. Part of the leaked documents, a report of the United States Senate Subcommittee on Investigations said that friends of the Russian President Vladimir Putin, who were sanctioned, were able to move around millions of dollars through buying expensive art pieces. And talking about the global art market, the report says, quote, secrecy, anonymity, and the lack of regulation create an environment ripe for laundering money and evading sanctions. Does it remind you of anything, guys? Like people usually talk like that about crypto, don't they? It sounds like using certain assets to launder funds is a common theme. Yeah, and by the looks of it, it seems like crypto isn't really, by any stretch of the imagination, the most used vehicle for these money launderers. I think that in total, the FinCEN files, yep, you had mentioned it earlier, Anna, it was reported over $2 trillion worth of transactions And even though there's this rhetoric around cryptocurrency, only a tiny portion of that total came from scams or illicit activity that was tied back to cryptocurrency. There was the case of BNY Mellon. I believe they were linked to $137 million worth of laundering related to the OneCoin scam. But in general, the SARs that this report is talking about really don't touch crypto nearly as much as some of the detractors would want to make you think. So an SAR, in this case, for those who might not be aware, a suspicious activity report. Basically, banks have to file a suspicious activity report anytime that they interact with or see a transaction that might be, I think it's over $2,000. There's another type of report for over you know, transactions over $10,000. And this dates back to like the 70s. Um, don't quote me on that, but it dates back to when that was a large amount of money for a small number of people. And the numbers haven't changed, even though thanks to inflation and other economic factors, $2,000 isn't worth as much relative to us today as it was back when these laws were created. So 
basically these are hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of SARs filed over 18 years for various transactions. Right. But I'm thinking like, what if the money laundering industry kind of uh, neatly divided between some old school guys who keep laundering money through traditional banks and the new cool guys who do it through crypto? Like maybe this is just uh, two parallel industries and one is not much smaller than the other. We don't have like actual numbers, but just a hypothesis. We don't have actual numbers, but I think we can kind of extrapolate. I mean, we know for sure that crypto isn't laundering $2 trillion worth of illicit funds. They're nowhere near that much volume or, or transaction activity. To be fair, the $2 trillion was over 18 years, so it's not like a short period of time. But it kind of just feels like, you know, on the adoption front, crypto's still kind of lagging, maybe for lack of a better term, compared to other methods of laundering funds through banks. But what kind of really is interesting to me are two details from the BuzzFeed reporting. So the first is that, you know, these banks are filing all these reports and no one did anything about it. That's the whole point of the FinCEN files is that governments are not doing anything about the money laundering that's allegedly going on. But the other part is the fact that BuzzFeed and a couple other entities got something like 22,000 documents collected over 18 years And not all of them were actually linked to illicit activity. BuzzFeed reported that they were not releasing some of the documents because they had pertained to activity that was not suspicious, which raises the question, why does FinCEN have personal and financial information about people who are not under suspicion of any crime and who apparently just made the mistake of filing a large transaction? Yeah, I think that the banks really want to err on the side of caution, and that's to the detriment of personal privacy. The banks don't want to be in a position where they're missing reportings, anything that could potentially be suspicious activity. And so that's probably leading them to react very swiftly to any possible illicit activity, whereas really there's only a tiny fraction of that that's actually going to end up being problematic. Wait, so the banks don't even have to suggest that this transaction is related to something suspicious, but it just has to be big enough transaction and then it has to be reported. I think they do have to put some judgment into whether the actual transaction seems suspicious. Whether or not they're doing so, I don't know. It could very well be that they are just flagging all these large transactions. Part of what they're doing is looking to documents like what FATF just put out, the uh, red flag indicators for crypto money laundering. When they file these SARs, they're saying, oh, well, we have this red flag, we have that red flag. And even if there's not so many red flags that it's clear that this is some sanctioned Russian moving crypto through the art market, they probably still want to file that report just in case so that they're not in a position where FinCEN comes knocking and says, hey, how come you missed this? And that is actually, to be fair, the trend we are seeing, even let's tie back to crypto, banks and entities don't want to touch crypto because it might be suspicious. Not that it is or that there are you know legitimate concerns. It's just that the space has this reputation that, you know, oh, crypto's used for like gamblers or like whatever. It's people are losing money, exchanges get hacked. And so we've seen exchanges and stablecoin issuers and these companies complain that they're unable to get banking relationships because of the reputation, because of the perceived risk. Whether or not that risk is legitimate, whether or not it's tangible, we're seeing that exact same caution. 
Actually, back to your privacy point, Nick. I'm not sure why anybody should be surprised that all your transactions through mainstream financial entities can be surveilled and thoroughly looked through by the regulator. It's a centralized and controlled system. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be absolutely transparent to the supervision of the regulators. Like, is that any shocker? I think my question is more, you know, why is FinCEN storing this information for so long, right? And if they can't protect it, why are they storing it for 18 years? Because again, these are transactions dating back to 1999. And I struggle to believe that a individual who did not commit a crime, whose only quote unquote mistake was to send a large transaction 21 years ago, should have their information leaked to a reporter because entity held onto it for that long and was not careful enough to hold it securely. Right. Imagine all that info being on the blockchain. Yeah, to that point, you know, I do think that there is a equal risk in storing all your transactions on a immutable ledger. Even with the pseudonymity protection, you're still kind of out there and all it takes is one person being able to tie your identity to your transactions or your wallet to ensure that you know congratulations you're broadcasting your information right so folks watch your transactions like watch your anonymity options don't launder money and if you really want privacy you should revert to a barter economy that's the only way to avoid uh, being watched by the feds absolutely all right moving on Stablecoins have made a reappearance in draft legislation and guidance in both the European Union and the U.S. A leaked bill by the European Commission, dubbed the Markets and Crypto Assets, or MICA, shed some light on how the EU might approach different types of cryptocurrencies, including stablecoins. Across the pond, the U.S. federal banking and securities regulators have published guidance for stablecoin issuers, saying that federal banks can hold on to the reserves. So let's talk about Europe first. Our colleague Ian Allison published last week that stablecoins that fit into the European definition of e-money will fit into existing and somewhat strict regulations. You know, you have to register as an entity, you have to incorporate in an EU member nation if you're issuing a stablecoin. Basically, there's just a lot of restrictions around operating in the EU. It's interesting. It looks like the regulators are paying special attention to stablecoins in particular. And it kind of feels like this is what disturbs them most because you can imagine a regulator watching Bitcoin and yeah, it's some volatile thing. People bet on that, but stable coins kind of imitate real money, right? And they do participate in real economy right now with all the merchants that are moving funds and uh, goods around borders. And it's like tens of millions of dollars a day. So it looks like the regulators start noticing that and they're like, wait, we should control that. That's some real shadow economy happening right under our nose. Yeah, stablecoins have definitely been really increasing usage, I think. There's a lot of interest around being able to tap the crypto asset for various reasons, including you know just the fact that it might be easier to use than physical cash or certain other cross-border payment systems. And Nick, I'm wondering why you think that the OCC uh, jumping across the pond has made the decision on stablecoins that it has at this point. Is this a result of Brian Brooks's above showing up at the OCC? Or do you think the previous crypto work that came out of the OCC a couple of weeks ago has been in the works for a while and now Brooks is just there when it's finally come public? 
on the U.S. side, so the Office of Controller of the Currency, the OCC, the federal banking regulator, said that banks can hold on to the funds for stablecoin issuers. Basically, they're kind of just giving the green light to banks like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or one of your big nationwide federally regulated institutions to hold on to the U.S. dollars that are backing stablecoins like USDC or the Paxos dollar or the Gemini dollar in hosted wallets, meaning that a trusted third party, such as the issuer or an exchange, controls the wallet. If you are self-hosting the wallet, these are referred to as unhosted wallets. Basically, in a wallet where the user controls the keys do not fit into this guidance. The OCC is basically kind of just giving its blessing to federal banks. It's in the form of an interpretive letter. I go into the difference in the article from a while back, but it's not strictly guidance in the sense that you know it has the full force and weight. It's just basically the OCC's lawyer saying like, yeah, we're cool with this. We're not going to come after you if you do this. It is subject to being overturned in the future. To your point about whether or not this is a move by Brian Brooks, and for those of you who aren't sure, Brian Brooks is the former general counsel at Coinbase. He's now the acting controller of the currency, meaning he's heading up the federal banking regulator. My suspicion is he definitely had a role in accelerating whatever process might be going on here, whether or not the OCC was already considering this prior to Brooks's tenure, I'm not sure, but we've seen the OCC make a number of moves in just the last couple of months since Brooks took over, whether it's announcing that banks can provide services to crypto companies or whether it's trying to accelerate this payment charger, allowing crypto exchanges to operate nationwide without having to go through a 50 state or 49 state piecemeal money transmission license regimen. So I definitely can see this being something that Mr. Brooks helped move along. But I wonder if stable coins was on the top of their priority. I mean, it's really great that uh, we're starting to get some more clarity from the US regulators about how they treat crypto. But why do you think, Nick, like, did you see this coming? Like, why stable coins came up kind of first? I'm going to be honest, this is actually really surprising to me. And at least part of the reason why is because we've had stable coins that are pegged to the U.S. dollar in the U.S. for years. Like I said, we've had Paxos, we've had Gemini, we've had USDC. So this isn't a new issue. So I'm genuinely a little curious what the impetus was for this announcement. And then what's kind of confounding that curiosity is the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, the federal securities regulator, published a statement yesterday saying that some digital assets may or may not be securities and you should really check in with them. So the SEC basically saying, okay, there are stable coins that exist and some stable coins we know are likely to be securities. We're talking algorithmic stable coins like Basis, which shut down in 2018. Those are clearly securities, but here we're talking about dollar-backed stable coins where you have an issuer and you have a bank account for that issuer. And I'm wondering, does this mean the SEC is implying that USDC or GUSD or Paxos dollar, those might be securities because they have been out there. They've been operating for years. And my guess is they're not trying to say that, but it's interesting that they wouldn't just come out and say it, right? It's a very fact and circumstances decision, sure. And I guess they want the issuers to talk with them before they say anything, but there's still a lot of confusion out there. We don't have an example yet of what the SEC thinks is not a security as far as stable coins go. 
And it's amazing how different governments approach stablecoins. In the U.S., we have this conversation about how stablecoins might be a security, might not be, what it means. And down in Venezuela, the government there is approaching stablecoins from a completely different angle. Coindesk contributor Jose Rafael Peña Golam writes about how opposition leader Juan Guaido, he's attempted to airdrop $19 million in stablecoins to Venezuela's health heroes, but the effort has fallen flat. The money had come from funds seized from the Maduro regime by U.S. authorities, and Guaido was hoping to use it to pay thousands of health workers with a $100 bonus for three months of work. But Maduro has used tech hiccups and lots of blocking to basically hamper this campaign and make it extremely difficult for this $19 million in stablecoins, and that's stablecoins issued by AirTM, to get out to the health heroes that they're supposed to reach. And this whole story has me thinking about kind of that clash between like a government that's out to stop a decentralized system from operating and a airdrop that relies on like a central provider. We've got ARTM who was going to be facilitating the airdrop, but when the Maduro regime is saying, we're not gonna let anyone onto the website, we're not gonna let anyone sign up, it becomes almost impossible for the airdrop to go forward as planned, even though it exists in you know this crypto economy outside or purportedly outside of centralized control. I wonder if it could work if instead of the website, they would use just some mobile apps. Would it be harder to block something like that? I think so. There are a couple different layers to this onion, I think. One is Obviously, we're seeing that centralized you know, websites or centralized points of access are becoming a point of failure or they're a potential point of failure. So I think that even if you've got a mobile app, you know, you're still using whatever national internet system or uh, internet provider router, you still have to be able to access the app. I don't know what the distribution of mobile phones versus com- personal computers is, but unless you're using like a mesh network, a mobile app or app-based devices aren't going to really be able to help you against the same kind of centralized issues. You know, if the nation's ISPs, uh, internet service providers are not letting you access a website, there's no reason they're going to let you access an app. Right. Need to build decentralized networks, folks. Need to build them to help people around the world. So what's really interesting to me is like, Discussing that whole centralized versus decentralized network issue is that, you know, it's not so much that it's the stable coins themselves or, you know, the crypto aspect. It's just that purely from a usage standpoint, we're not yet in a place where anyone can just hop on, download a wallet and use it. Well, I think with this campaign, it was supposed to pay out in dollars and the stable coins are just the transmission method. But again, like there is the central point of failure, which makes it difficult, uh, if not impossible for most users to be able to access the funds. And it's not just about stable coins. It's about any crypto, anything that relies on the internet, right? Right. And this is even made even more interesting because in Venezuela, the government has their own cryptocurrency, the Petro, which is purportedly an oil-backed stable coin of their own. Um, they've been trying to use the Petro more and more across all aspects of public life and trying in many respects to make the world's first government-sanctioned crypto economy. Of course, the government is also heavily sanctioned from the US. That's another story. But we also see there that the Petro has struggled to really take hold. Bitcoin adoption is maybe a little bit up 
during the pandemic, but it's hardly been booming. And just recently, we've seen the effects of sanctions against the Maduro regime. Paxful, which was one of the country's two main peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchanges, has decided to leave. And so in this place where the government and many citizens and the media, ourselves included, likes to say, oh, wow, this really is a hub of crypto adoption. There's this other story where you know, it's not really moving as smoothly as we all would like to think. Yeah, and that was actually shocking news for me because Venezuela ranked third in the global crypto adoption index by Chainalysis recently. Like it's one of the most active countries regarding crypto adoption on the lower level, you know, on the level of real mass adoption. And people are using crypto to hedge against the national currency volatility. And they use it exactly in this way that Paxful provides, peer-to-peer. They have a real active peer-to-peer market. And all this time, the narrative has been, look, the centralized system can fail so badly. People could use crypto to work around these centralized problems. And then you see this whole decentralized crypto industry kind of abandoning people who need it maybe most of all. Due to centralized reasons like regulations. Yeah, one thing that Jose wrote is that yeah, crypto adoption is growing, but it does remain low nationwide. To your point, whatever this narrative is of rapidly growing crypto adoption, it's all relative, right? And it sure looks like in real terms, it's not growing that quickly. Yeah, and that's a sobering moment that, you know, all those centralized players, the the governments, the central banks, the law enforcement, they still will have a very powerful tools to slow the adoption, to make this industry really struggle, and maybe even suffocate it at some points in some locations. I don't know. Stories like that are really disturbing signs. I think that maybe one glimmer of hope might be the fact that the regime is pushing its own cryptocurrency. I feel like that fact alone, that uh, idea that the state has its you know, certified sanctioned cryptocurrency will keep cryptocurrency as an option in people's minds more so than in maybe other places where it's completely off the table. Like if I was living in a country where the government had its cryptocurrency and I didn't trust it because I knew that they were pouring through the ledger and they knew everything that was happening, I might still be uh, interested in cryptocurrency and be pushed towards other options. So this is definitely still a work in progress. And despite the mixed bag of headlines, it's worth keeping an eye on Venezuela to see where it goes. Yeah, it's really interesting to watch what's next for Venezuela. And in other really interesting headlines this week, the U.S. Treasury Department sanctions two other Russian nationals, Daniel Potekin and Dmitry Karasavidi, who have been scamming people by deploying fake websites of Binance, Poloniex, and Gemini, and fishing out users' information. And three Iranian power plants, powerful enough to supply half of New York City, will soon sell surplus electricity to crypto miners, which sounds kind of promising to me. You can find those and more stories at Coindesk.com. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.